0: Welcome to Farscape Friday, episode 21. This week, we'll be discussing the Farscape episode, Bone to be Wild. I'm Kay, here with my co-host, Taz. Hello, let's get started. Welcome back. Here's a quick synopsis of Bone to be Wild. While in a cat-and-mouse game with Krace's command carrier, the crew goes down to an asteroid to rescue a young scientist. The asteroid turns out to be an Eden for plants, and the crew discovers that the young girl they thought was a scientist is actually a dangerous predator who ate an entire science team. While they try to survive, Aaron bonds with Moya's offspring, and Scorpius and Krace vie for power.
1: After the intensity of nerve and the hidden memory, Bone to be Wild gives us a little breathing room as the crew is hiding from the peacekeepers in an asteroid field i feel like this episode could could feel a little out of place as a monster of the week story in the midst of this season finale but i kind of like it i think we do need a little space to process everything and see how the events of the last couple episodes have really affected our heroes and especially john here because he hasn't changed out of his borrowed peacekeeper clothing he's now carrying a pulse pistol with intent to kill any enemy that gets near him as he goes down to this asteroid. And what this episode does, I think, is really clever, is it's never quite clear at any given time who the enemy is.
0: Yeah, because the episode starts in this really great way. It starts with everybody crowded around a table and in... I think they're in the mess, right? No, I think they're in command. Oh, okay. Well, so they're crowded around a table in command, and they're... All freezing because they've had to lower the temperature so that Crisis Command can't read their energy signature. So they're all freezing, and it kind of gives a good feeling of those old submarine movies where you have an enemy that's looking for another enemy, and they're both trying to outsmart each other. So that's kind of the setup. Is that the reason that they need to go down to the asteroid is because they need maps to get out of this asteroid field without the command carrier knowing? And it's just a really I feel like I really enjoy the setup of this episode because you're right, Nerve and Hidden Memory, they just brought the A game. And this episode really gives us a chance to step back, enjoy the characters without having it all at this like high stakes
1: cost. And you really get the the reaction to the torture that John has gone through, this intense rescue that they all went through to get him out. And they all have a little bit of breathing space. And also Moya has a baby now because the baby was born at the end of hidden memory and now he is hiding with them in the asteroid fields and that's one of the other major plot points Um, i really like your note about the submarine tension like this underground like even though they're all inside moya and they can't be heard like aaron is whispering during that scene when they're all huddled around in cold. so not only is it visually and the cold making it this very much a hidden situation for them where they're hiding but even the characters themselves are really feeling it in the way that they talk to each other in that scene. Yeah, they get this distress call and I think that what,
0: what really what really sets this off and makes it not a monster of the week episode is they get this distress call from this girl that's down on this asteroid and she's like there's a monster and he's going to eat me, help me, help me and then it kind of cuts off. And Chiana is like, Chiana kind of looks at all of them and she's like, this is a little ironic.
1: Like, (laughs) Someone's calling us for help. And John has this really, really kind of strained laughter that follows. And he's like, how stupid are they?
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I think that that's right because, okay, so we've seen John at a lot of points in the 20 episodes before now. We've seen him, you know, when he first meets the aliens and he's like, oh my gosh, I get to meet aliens. And then we've seen, you know, kind of the backlash of like, oh, this is not great. And we've seen him out of his element (laughs) and we've seen him to what we thought was his breaking point when he was fighting Kreis in Old Black Magic. And we've just seen him at so many different points. And I think that hidden memory, it's like a breaking point for him, but it's also a breaking point for the series because up until hidden up until hidden memory the series really could have just been like any other science fiction show like Andromeda like Stargate SG1 even like right. even like Star Trek cuz I'm also simultaneously doing a Star Trek rewatch <laughs> next generation <laughs> but there's this episode you know where Picard becomes Borg
1: oh yeah and then yeah. he like
0: annihilates an entire starfleet fleet
1: <laughs> and then he has to deal with the ramifications of his transformation and that's what we're seeing here with John because yeah. He has gone through a horrifically invasive torture. Your your mind is your castle, right? And it's not just his body that was invaded by being out of sight of his control and him being a prisoner, but it's also his mind that was invaded and torn apart and his deepest, darkest feelings and secrets ripped open. Whether or not you know, he would have been open to sharing them with other people at some point, but the point that they were torn from him by Scorpius, who was an enemy, who was just drilling into him and drilling into him and without any regard for him, this is really where John's character takes that turn into who he's going to become for the rest of the series. And I think he's starting to see some of that and um, and some of the post-traumatic stress that you see with John in this episode. He's like hypervigilant. He's got the pulse pistol tucked into his wep- his belt. This is the first time when he's not been playing a character, when he has a weapon on him. He's quick to draw it, he's quick to shoot, and he's very much in a this defensive mode this entire episode. Yeah. Well and
0: also the what you mentioned with Star Trek giving Picard like a, a little time to deal with being Borg, Star Trek gives it one episode. And by, like, they give him one episode and then it's over with. And they, like, address it later, but it's never really. Like, they never psychologically address it. And Farscape, like, Bone to be Wild is the first indication that Farscape, number one, actually knows what the trauma did to John Versus just kind of being like, oh, this is a thing that happened and in two episodes we're going to forget it happened. And also it, it really is going to have that line of continuity. The same way with Zan a little bit when she gave up her robes after Rhapsody in Blue. She didn't wear them for like three or four episodes. And there was kind of this emotional consequence for her. And so that's what we're seeing with John is kind of the emotional consequence of what happened to him.
1: Yeah. So they go down to the asteroid and they meet the, the young girl whose name is Emily who was played by Ben Bowder's wife, I believe, Oh, the actress, yeah, and so they go down, and she's like, the creature's after me, and so they end up fighting with the creature, and this is where the whole who is friend, who is foe thing comes into play, because it turns out that Emily is a calcivore, so she eats bones, and the creature from her distress signal who's after her is a scientist, a botanist, who's been on the on the asteroid to collect all the plant life and harvest it essentially. And so it turns out he is the one who is trying to survive her in this first part of the episode. And so you already have a twist on who is the good guy and who is the bad guy in this episode. And it's
0: kind of like one of those twists that you see coming a little bit. <laughs> because yeah. So initially she's like, oh, it's after me. And they like shoot in the, you know, the scientist. Well, we don't know he's a scientist at the time. He's just like this big, massive creature. And he like runs away. And then they take her back to the ship. But then she kind of starts like growing like needles
1: out of her headpiece. And her colors turn from blue to red, which is your audience signal that bad things are going to happen because she's red now. Yeah, exactly. I got to point out the co-
0: like her costume, crazy good.
1: Oh yeah, it's worth looking up pictures for because it's just it's. She's mostly in white. She's got her headpiece. It's got like these bulbous things that glow different colors. She's got these needles that stick out. She's got like sharp teeth. And she actually, when she goes hungry, she gets the spine. That's you know like a lizard's. Um, What's the lizard flap thing on the neck thing? Yeah, it's yeah. kind of like that, like it pops up. It's a really cool costume design.
0: Yeah, and it's all, it's all physical. Like, none of this is CGI, because you can see they have her doing like the transformation, and it just, it looks, I mean, we've talked in the past about like, how you never quite believe the puppets are real, but it still looks so cool that you're like, yes, I'm in. And this is another <laughs> one of those things where you're like, dang, this is so cool. She like sniffs John and it's kind of like anytime anybody is getting sniffed, you're kind of like, yeah, that's sketch-tastic.
1: <laughs> Except when it's Parker from Leverage.
0: Oh my gosh, I love you, Parker.
1: <laughs> also doing a par-
0: I'm also doing a Leverage rewatch, so you can put a lot going on. I've seen Leverage
1: like ten times. No joke. Anyway, so she's sniffing everybody and she sniffs Zan. And this is one of the best character note reveals like in probably lots of science fiction. Like, I don't know, I'm just going to play it and then we can talk about it. You smell different.
2: You smell like up there. Your olfactory senses are very good. I am also Flora. Yeah, right. Say what? <laughs> Didn't you know? No, what? You're a plant? Always have been, John. Why does it bother you? No, it doesn't bother me. I just never suspected. You're a vegetable? <laughs> everyone knows that Delvian's a flora evolved.
1: That's right. Xan comes out as a plant, and when I first watched this, oh god, it's so long ago, but I still remember. Just being kind of blown away that they made her a plant. I mean, that almost never happens to have a walking, talking, sentient plant around that isn't like Audrey II from Little Shop of Horrors, you know? Yeah. And I just thought it was so cool. It's so neat. It's so cool, and it's also,
0: it's it's a good reveal because you can tell that it's something that the that the writers have thought about because you go back to her like, photogasms. There's been like these little cues you know, of her being yeah. different.
1: Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that they wrote her as a plant to begin with. Like, that was some always something part of the character, and it wasn't something that they just sprung on in the last two episodes, but they actually had had planned it out. And I also love the fact that Darg was like, yeah, you didn't know? Because <laughs> it, it implies that everybody else, you know, is common knowledge and... Everyone else knew about it, and they just assumed either John knew about it or didn't really think about the fact that he would not because he's not from that part of the universe.
0: Yeah, and it's pretty neat, also, just because we get a little, a few other little reveals of Frizan throughout the episode. Like she turns out she can blend in with her background, which we saw previously in the Western episode, and you know she's just it. It's a really neat note for Zan because it's it's fun. It again points out that Farscape isn't really is willing to do things that are very different. So Zan gets kidnapped by the air quotes creature. And then she's the one that figures out that he's actually a botanist that's come to collect. And um, so she gets John and Dargo back on the side and and then they're hunting Emily. Well, they're not really hunting Emily. They're just kind of running from Emily.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah. And the reason for that is the botanist had let a team of people down and Emily had eaten the rest of his team, including his mate. So he's, you know, really upset by that and really wants her to die. And his idea for a plan is so once Emily eats, she goes back into a passive state. Her headdress goes to blue or her headpiece goes to blue and and then she just becomes passive. and Then she's vulnerable. And his idea is to sacrifice one of them. <laughs> To ha- let her eat, and so she goes back into the state. And of course, they're not very on board with this this whole idea. And Emily escapes, and Zan and Bernie. What's his name? Bernie. Bernie. Oh, God.
0: <laughs> or like no, Brittany or something like that. Bernie, something
1: like that. The botanist's name's Bernie. Anyway, so they go back to help Dargo because Dargo got hurt in one of the scuffles, leaving John alone with Emily. And then we get our second reveal of how Emily and her people came to be on the asteroid and it was because the ancestors of the botanists who seeded the asteroid with all these plants as kind of a laboratory or a nursery brought emily and her calcifor family to and her people to the asteroid to eat all the wildlife all the animal life and then they were left to starve so it's not a clear-cut good guy bad guy situation here that you have and i and i think that ambiguity is really is really nice because this this gray area of what in the past brings you to where you are in the present and how does that influence your actions at that time the history is as important as the present situation yeah you don't see just because of the pure victimization
0: involved M- M- emily is kind of the not good guy but M- emily is kind of the one to root for here
1: no i do i actually do think she is the more sympathetic of the two characters because she is in a very desperate situation that's completely outside of her control because she has to eat. Like she is starving to death. She will die. And nothing that the botanist is doing is going to help her situation at all. And he in fact just wants her dead. He wants to put her down like an animal. I mean, actually to me, it kind of reminded me of like people bringing goats to clear out like understory in like forested areas. And then he wants to shoot the goat. And mm-hmm. it's, it's really kind of cruel and unfair because the whole reason that his people died in the first place was because they brought the the invasive species, as it were, in. And then, you know, they're they're reaping the consequences of that now. Hmm.
0: Yeah, because I think that, I don't know, I mean, I would think it's almost even darker. Like, I don't, I think that given... And, okay, granted, this is supposed to have been something that happened a couple generations ago. Like, it's it's not supposed to... Bruni wasn't the one that brought her species there, and she right. wasn't the first of her species to be left on the planet. Because I think that it's supposed to have been, like, a hundred cycles or something. Yeah. Um,
1: Time enough for the plants to grow up. I, I don't know.
0: To me, I don't really see him either as sympathetic or him as somebody that you could root for because he came back to the asteroid expecting that her entire species would have been starved. Mm -hmm. Like the point was they were going to introduce this sentient species because she can speak, use technology and is clearly sentient. And so they brought in the sentient species, expected them to eat all the animals and then starve to death. She's had to make the really rough decision of having to eat her own people in order to survive.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I agree with that. I'm definitely on Emily's side in, in this situation when it, when it comes out, how how everything evolved, as it were. I have another question. So in the past,
0: we've, we've done this thing of like, Dargo's blood has to run clear or it won't heal. But at this point, he has an internal injury during mm-hmm. the struggle with, I forget if it's
1: Emily or Bernie or... It's Bernie. Yeah. Bernie throws him into a wall inside the transport pod.
0: Yeah. So he has an internal injury. Does that need to run clear? Like, do they need to cut him open and then squeeze that wound until the blood runs clear?
1: I think this is where we get into hand-wavy territory with this episode and this plot point. So the way they present it is that the plants on the planet are so magically medically effective... That they heal him without him having to be cut open and have his blood flow stimulated. How they do that, I don't know, but Xan does threaten to cut him open at one point, implying that that would be a solution that would normally be on offer. Except the magical plantness of the plant world, (laughs) that's what I'm gonna call it, Um, is able to clot his blood or increase the blood flow. Or, you know, what if they, there's like adrenaline and it increases heart rate and that really pushed blood through and maybe that did something? I don't know. I think that's a hand wavy plot point. They just needed a solution. So they were like magic plants or medical plants. (laughs) Yeah.
0: The Emily plot ends with Zan kind of siding with Bernie because John sides with Emily because John is like, hey, this
1: isn't, this isn't really cool. And so Zan ends up going off with Bernie. She's also a scientist herself, interested in herbal remedies and things like that. And she's the closest thing that the Moya crew has to a doctor. So I think there's sympathy there. And also the fact that there's this line that she has with with John being outraged that Emily was left to starve. And she's like, how animal centric of you to ignore all the plant life here when he says, like, you know, just for some dumb trees. Yeah. Which
0: this is where I kind of didn't buy that, because there's a huge I'm not saying that like a forest isn't important and clearly here on earth we know (laughs) the consequences of deforestation but at the same time i'm like xan is a sentient plant emily is a sentient animal plants are or like the trees here they haven't presented them as sentient do you know what i mean right
1: and then and they're the non-sentient type that you would eat and clearly xan eats other plants or some she must because she eats she eats food you know? Yeah. So yeah. No, I I agree that that line was kind of a, it felt a little off, and I think it was felt like more of an emotional reaction on Zan's part to how John said things as opposed mm. to what he said. That was kind of the sense sense I got out of it. Yeah. And also they had to force them to split up for plot reasons. Yeah. Because <laughs> so
0: <if> Zan <laughs> goes back to the cave with Bruni, and I can't tell if it's because I've seen it before, or if because earlier, as soon as she realized that Zan was a plant. Emily immediately was like, "Okay, done with you." Like I don't, you know, you're not food to me because Zan has, Zan doesn't have yeah. bones. And so John shows up and he sees Bernie alone, and Bernie's like, "Oh, I've, you know, Emily came and she took Zan." Wah, wah, wah. And um, so he's like, "Oh, Emily broke our truce," and he like runs out to like Emily's hunting ground, and he's like, "Emily, you promised you wouldn't eat any of us," and then he like sees a pile <laughs> of dead scientists, and he realizes. Zan is a plant.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it takes him a minute to process that. And so he realizes that Zan can't be eaten, that Emily wouldn't have taken her because Zan has no bones and therefore no calcium. And so he realizes that Bernie was basically sending him on a wild goose chase.
0: Yeah, well, and I think that Bernie kind of also expected that John would confront Emily in anger and either kill Emily or be killed by Emily, both of which would help Bernie's situation. So then John shows back up, realizes that Bernie has kidnapped Zan because Bernie is amazed at a sentient plant and his species <laughs> worship plants or something like that. I don't know.
1: Yeah, and so he's actually taken Xan as a plant specimen, which is kind of disturbing. And she's miniaturized because he has a miniaturization thing. Because of course he does. And what struck me about that whole whole bit was like. Here's another example of a scientist on Farscape who gets a really bad rap of being like the <laughs> evil scientist trope and the mad scientist who will do anything for science. I mean, we had Namtar and DNA mad scientist. Whoever the original scientist was, her hubris led to Namtar, who then became a scientist in his own right, doing the same sorts of things. And you have the whole example of Scorpius is in the scientific branch of the Peacekeepers doing whatever it takes. And here we have Brené who is just going to say, oh, cool, I like this. I'm going to take it home. (laughs) She looks like a little (laughs) maquette. It's really cute, actually. I know, right? I don't want a Zan maquette. (laughs) I hope somebody got to keep it. It was very neat. I wonder if Virginia Hay got to keep it. That'd be pretty Anyway, so the final confrontation then is John and Brené and again with the weapon, you know, John pulling his weapon, Trying to, and then there's loss in the scuffle, and he ends up being able to pull out the chalk and oil cartridge when when Brittany has the gun on him and reanimate Zan and accidentally kill Brittany in the process. Yeah. Um. But from the laser miniaturization gun thing. Yeah. And so Zan is back. She realizes her
0: old pal Bernie kind of evil. <laughs> <laughs> but meanwhile, and this kind of ties back into like. I don't know if we'd call it the B plot or the C plot, but it ties back into one of the other plots in the episode, which is that Emily, who has been like holding herself together, is is essentially, she's doing that thing where she's like, you know, she's holding herself together so hard that, you know, if she were a human, you know, blood would be coming out of her palms for like gripping her, you know, fists so tightly to hold herself yeah, together. Yeah, I mean,
1: it's actually quite admirable what she does. She holds off on eating um, John and Dargo because she needs their help getting off the asteroid.
0: Yeah. So she goes to Dargo and she's like, I, I have to eat something. She's like, I can't, I'm trying my hardest, but I have to eat. I'm starving. So let's just play that real quick.
2: I'm sorry, but I have nothing to offer you. Please, please, anything, anything. Except there's a ship of beings out there, thousands. No one will regret their passing. You can have as many as you can lay claim to. How do I? How do I get that? They're coming soon. As soon as we start the engines and blast off from here. You you, you promised. Thousands.
1: So there we have Dargo basically saying, hey, when the peacekeepers come because they're going to come after us, you can eat them. <laughs> and I kind of love it because it's, well, there's two things about it that I love. One, one, it's a solution to their problem of the peacekeepers. Hey, we have this creature that can maybe put a dent in some of their numbers. Two, it's a way to, to help Emily because Dargo's facial expressions, he's sympathetic to her. You know, he's come in on John's side of it that it's really cruel what's been happening to her and that she's starving to death and he doesn't, he feels bad for her. And so it's a solution for her that he can offer her without sacrificing his own life. And what I like about that is it also shows how far Dargo has come as a character this season in that this is not a black and white situation. And he realizes it and he figures out a way to offer her something without just shooting her and killing her and making his problems go away. Because right now he's armed. He's got the Qualta blade on her. He says, don't come closer and she's on the other side of the room, but he doesn't shoot at her. And that's not something I think would have happened with Dargo from the earlier part of the season. He would have just shot her and be done with it. Yeah.
0: We've kind of talked about, like, the evolution of, Dar- of Dargo's plans of going from, like, the <laughs> most simple, straightforward, possibly not most, you know, not smartest plans. <laughs> like, you know, cutting off your pinky finger, kicking out the random thing. And then in the past few episodes, we have seen him become... More of a tactician. Yeah. Because this is like a very clean solution. And also it does show empathy, you know, because I can't really think of another character other than his crewmates
1: where he has had that kind of empathy with. Yeah. 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 His black and white world, which has slowly expanded to gray areas with Moya's crew and Aaron in particular is who we see that most, the most with to now extending it beyond his small bubble. Mm -hmm. It's kind of cool to see, you know? Yeah. And, I, and
0: you can hear in her voice in that clip the desperation of, like, somebody mm-hmm. that is starving to death. So then yeah. she goes back to the cave and she's kind of like, I already talked to Dargo. You know, she's, I can't really last on your shuttle because I would eat one of you. So I'm going <laughs> to stay here and wait, but I'm starving and I need something. And um, so they offer her the dead corpse of Bernie, which kind of saves everybody from the moral ambiguity of you know, her situation.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that Zan says as she and John watch her go to town on Bernie is like, this is a really cruel universe. They have just been through so much so recently. And here's another example of someone else who's been punished for no good reason or has gone through this horrific experience for no good reason, just because that's how the universe is. It's out to get you in whatever way it can. Mm-hmm. And it's, they're all in a dark place when they leave the the asteroid.
0: Yeah, this hasn't really helped heal any of John's wounds, having to make decisions like this.
1: No. But so the the notion
0: of the peacekeepers coming, it also kind of reties back to one of the plots. Because they do leave with maps that help them get out of the asteroid field, or that can help them get out of the asteroid field. But it kind of ties back to this thing that's been going on with Scorpius and Crace. And I've got to say... I love this plot.
1: Oh, it's so good. <laughs> It's just flat out so good. Incredibly good. So the situation is, well, Moira's crew is hiding. Krace and Scorpius are on the command carrier fighting for control of the command carrier. They're not duking it out, though that does happen kind of at the end, but it's just this progression of Scorpius taking control slowly away from Krace. And it starts out with him making a suggestion, like, hello, captain. I'm going to offer you a suggestion, and I'm gonna I'm gonna play that right here, so you can hear the tone of his voice.
2: If I was in command, Captain, I would concentrate on the Leviathan's newborn, bombard the area with multi-frequency signals, discordant stimuli. See if I couldn't make the offspring reveal itself in panic, and. It's mother along with it. Hmm? Sir, your orders? My orders stand. Change our position.
1: It's so good! It's so okay. good. Okay, so just to pick that apart. So Scorpius walks in and he's like, if I were in command, I mean, I know you're really in command, but if I were in command, this is what I would do. Here's a good idea for you to choose to follow since you are clearly in command right here. And it's so diplomatic. It is so like somebody who is not in power yet, but has knows what's up, really needs to be the one who's calling the shots, trying to make it happen. And Krace hates Scorpius because of the Aurora chair and all the other things. And he's just like, no, out of spite. And I just mm-hmm. love that because he is he is still in control of his command carrier and at this moment, he still is. And the other voice you heard on there was, Lieutenant Bracca! Bracca's shown up finally! I know! Yay! Who is like, Captain Crace, what are your orders? And that's still clearly who is in control right here. Mm-hmm. I love that as people who have already watched the series,
0: every time a character shows up, we're like, <laughs> you're here! It's kind of like being at a party, and like like all your old friends are coming, and you're like, oh my gosh, you're here! And it's kind of... Because like, so Bracca isn't even like a, like a a super likable character, but at the same He's time... Not. I'm kind of like, you're here, Bracca. You know? We welcome. love you, Bracca. <laughs> Cuz I think I felt, we felt the same way about Chiana and Scorpius. And we're like, you're here. <laughs> we love the you know, good guy and the bad guy, best villain and now we have best henchman. So, it's a good starting place because this is Scorpius that doesn't necessarily want the power because Scorpius does kind of act as a lone wolf. Do you know what I mean? Like that's his modus operandi, is like lone wolf. Because Scorpius doesn't necessarily want the command carrier at this point. He is used to kind of acting as like doing what he wants when he wants. And when you're commanding a command carrier, that's a lot of stuff going on. Like you have to have, there's a lot of moving pieces with that that I don't think Scorpius necessarily cares about.
1: Right, he's just so focused on finding John. He wants to use whatever means he can to get John Crichton and the information he has about wormholes and everything else is extraneous. Yeah, exactly. But
0: Scorpius really is used to his suggestions and his orders being obeyed and being obeyed quickly. So mm-hmm. I think he, up until that moment when Kreis flat out just is like, "No," Scorpius didn't really care about the command carrier. And then when Kreis says no, it's like you can kind of see Scorpius going from being like, "All right then, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this," because yeah. the next scene that they have together is not in front of Crace's underling, in front of, you know, it's not in front of Bracca, which I think Scorpius made an error in confronting, in suggesting to Chris about the discordant stimuli in front of Bracca. And so now he comes to Crace one-on-one and they have this like vicious conversation.
1: And I want to also point out the staging of this because it's Crace walking into his own quarters and Scorpius is already there sitting in his chair. It's like walking to someone's office or walking into your own office and someone is sitting in your chair.
0: In his office or bedroom, I think, I don't know, in this yeah. giant room that Kreis has. I think it's actually technically his quarters, <laughs> but also his okay, office. Okay, his quarters, yeah. Because there's like his office desk and his office chair, <laughs> but then there's also like this throne. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's right, yeah.
0: There's, like, it's like a throne that's, like, off to the side, and then I think his bed is off to the other side. You're like, oh, okay, Grace. <laughs> that's cool that you've got a throne in your bedroom.
1: <laughs> well, it's a, it's a complete power play, and, and that's exactly how the staging sets it up for Scorpius to be reversing that power play. Yeah,
0: because Scorpius isn't sitting in the office chair. Scorpius is sitting in the yeah. throne chair.
1: <laughs> yes. All right, here's the scene.
2: I've never understood the need of some warriors to memorialize their conquests. Does displaying this decaying flesh remind you of past instances when you were powerful? Your branch of the service gives you special privileges, Scorpius, which does not include disrespect of rank. I want you off my ship. Of course you do. Candidly, Captain, you have continually failed. In all your duties. Your vector for success has grown quite small. Stray outside it, and I fear this ship will soon be in need of someone else to command her."
1: And this is the threat. Here he is, sitting in Kreis' seat of power, mocking his trophies, which are like heads of Hynerians and things like that, like sentient beings that he has conquered being so accommodating of course you want me off your shift that's okay and then here comes the threat you don't have any room to mess up and I'm going to be here when you mess up and take over yeah that's the subtext there it's really great I think what I like there it makes the implied threat of Scorpius
0: very very explicit because up until now it's just been kind of like it would be kind of like if you were a CEO and then somebody else came in That was the CEO of another company and was just hanging out.
1: Do you know (laughs) what I mean? Yeah, it's like getting ready for the hostile takeover. Yeah,
0: and you're kind of like, are they here to, are they here just temporarily? Are they here to unseat me? What's going on? But now Scorpius has made, has been very explicit that I am here, and if you do not do what I want when I want it, I will take away your ship from you.
1: Yeah, and it kind of goes back to, to that little scene that we had in The Hidden Memory where Scorpius talks Crace's own men into putting him in the Aurora chair. Because right now, the only thing protecting Crace from Scorpius is the loyalty of, what, a couple thousand peacekeepers on his command carrier. Because Scorpius doesn't have his own men there. These are all Crace's men. And his threat is, I will undermine you and go in through your, your people and that's how he's going to to take command, because that is the only thing that is protecting Crace, and Crace is on a really thin line with them, and already has been, as we've seen in past episodes. And that's actually what comes up in the next scene between the two of them, when Scorpius has, you know, made a few suggestions to the bridge crew, mm-hmm. going behind Crace's back. And in the meantime, he's also setting up his position with command.
0: Um, I want to get back real quick to the other quote, because... I want to make the point that here Scorpius is very, is very strategically using his intellect to get the men. And previously when he did, we called him silver-tongued, I think, in hidden yeah. memory or nerve, whichever one, just because of how, how focused he is on using his words, on using his mind, on being the smartest person in the room. That, that isn't how Crace works. Crace has physical trophies of, of beings that he has decapitated. Crace is very physical after his brother was killed. We've talked about his hair. We've talked about his clothing. We've talked about how he moves violently. And when he wants to look at something, he shoves somebody out of the way to look at a screen. And yeah. you know, when he's confronting John, it's all about being in his face. It's this, this raw physicality that I think is also getting under Scorpius's skin a little bit that Scorpius isn't used to being not listened
1: to and Scorpius really does really prefers everything to be cold and intellectual. Yeah. I really like that point about about the difference in their styles, especially the physicality of Grace. Mhm. So, Scorpius after having threatened
0: to undermine <laughs> Grace <laughs> and we have another moment between them.
2: You requested my presence, Captain. Do you suggest to my bridge officer that we do not adjust our current position? Yes. Your bridge officer and her crew seem to appreciate the merits of my suggestion. You've gone too far, Scorpius. You have directly questioned my command. Your command begs question. If my actions were under examination, I would have been recalled. You were recalled. Do you forget that I have seen your memories? That I know of your insubordination? that I have witnessed the execution of your second officer. When I bring in the Leviathan's offspring, we will forestall any of those charges. No, get out of my quarters. I'll tell the bridge officer. We won't be changing our course.
1: So there, what I love about that is is Crace is still acting like he has all the control and like all he has to do is tell Scorpius, no, you cannot do that in his very gruff, direct, no explanations needed kind of way. And you're being insubordinate. And here Scorpius is like, you know, you were recalled. You are already not supposed to be where you are. Mm-hmm. And I just love that callback to all that old black magic where he's gone against orders. And that's, you know, the whole back half of Krace's motivation is to cover up and to find Crichton and to now redeem himself by capturing Moya again.
0: And it does go back to that thing we were talking about earlier. Because Scorpius is playing chess. Scorpius... Even though the information of like, hey, I know you killed your second. I know you have been recalled. That kind of information, Scorpius didn't drop it until Crace was trying to outmaneuver him intellectually, right? Like that information, Crace could have come in and been like, hey, I think we should do this. And oh, by the way, I know that you've been recalled. Yeah, Scorpius. Or sorry, Scorpius could have, you know, come in and dropped that information at any time. But instead he waited. And he was, like, holding out on it. So Scorpius is playing chess. Krace thinks that they are wrestling, like, physically. (laughs) You know, like, they're two schoolyard kids, like, wrestling for power. Yeah. And Scorpius is like, no, no, no. (laughs) We're not wrestling. We're playing chess.
1: Yeah. And here I've made the move with your bridge officer. She liked the idea. What are you going to do about that? And... Trace tries to counter and Scorpius is like, nope, you don't have the authority. I'm going to go ahead and tell her to do what I want her to do because he says, you know, we're not changing position. And that's the position that it was his suggestion that even though Trace is wanting to counter the orders, he can't because Scorpius has already talked his his own people into starting to be on his side, Mm -hmm. on Scorpius's side.
0: Yeah. And ironically, and this is kind of this is what kind of ties back to what's going on down on the planet is that if Scorpius and Crace hadn't been fighting for power, they would have discovered the Moya crew, because yeah. Scorpius's idea would have worked.
1: Yeah, and from an audience perspective, you know that makes you root for Crace because who's the bigger threat here? Mm-hmm. The bigger threat to our crew is Scorpius, and so who is our friend and who is our foe? Well, they're both foes, but Crace is the one who's like dumber and <laughs> is the one who's more likely to mess up. So he's the one the audience kind of turns to rooting for. And that kind of gets back to that theme of who do we want to win this fight?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And the thing is, is
0: like we've kind of discussed about how Kreis, number one, as a threat, hasn't been that threatening because as a villain, he doesn't really appear.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And he chooses scenery when he does.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, when he shows up in Nerve and Hidden Memory, he's so he's clearly like lost. Do you know what I mean?
1: And also completely outclassed by Scorpius. Yeah. So it's kind of like, who are you rooting
0: for (laughs) here? I don't know who you are rooting for.
1: (laughs) So that brings us to to the final confrontation between Scorpius and Crace. And at this point, Crace is eating breakfast or something. It looks like oatmeal. I'm calling it breakfast. And Scorpius walks in. He drops a report. And then basically they go to town and it's the the final power play between them i'm going to play that right here
2: you are unfit for duty by any measure i personally intend to see you stripped of rank and office so you can take command of my carrier i already have Physical superiority to your kind as well. If you want to fight anyone, attack your executioner.
0: Ooh, <laughs> it's so good!
1: It's so good. So, 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 Scorpius is coming in. He has a report that's going to high command. It's all so by the book. And that's what I love about him. And he's already... It's fait accompli, right? He's mm-hmm. probably already sent this report. He's already taking control of the crew. And he's just letting Krace know that he's done. And Krace, as you pointed out earlier, is so physical. He responds by attacking Scorpius. And like shoving him into a wall or whatnot. And that's when you see this other side mm-hmm. of Scorpius emerge. And thats th- that was his voice. That really deep, deep voice was Scorpius with his scarin' side voice. Being like, why must I show my physical superiority, not just my mental superiority, because he's already shown that. But now I have to be this physical creature, too. And he hates that. And then he's like, you're going to be executed. You should fight the person who's executing you and not me, because he is now in command and his grace is no longer a consideration from him. I just love that.
0: Mm hmm. Well, also, because it does kind of have this question of like, if Scorpius is not his executioner, who is? You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Yeah, you pointing out the whole Kreis attacking Scorpius when he gets this news really reminds me. It goes back to that moment in Old Black Magic where he sees his second, gets the news he's been done, and he's kind of like, "Hey, does anybody else know this?" And she's like, "No." And then he <laughs> kills her. So he responds yeah. to this. He responds to this mental threat by a physical act. Which also, yeah. I'm like, how did you get rid of the body, Grace like did right. nobody <laughs> ask what happened to her? you know anyway, yeah. but that's like a
1: yeah, but that that's his that's his response. that's the kind of way that he responds to these sorts of things is to kill the person who can who can do it in the case of lieutenant Teague, you know she was the only one who knew in this case, Scorpius is much smarter than that he's already got the crew on his side. Even if Kreis does succeed in killing him, which Scorpius obviously knows he's not going to, he's not gonna get away with it because it's done. Mm-hmm. Like all the reports have been done and since, the crew is on Scorpius's side, Kreis is not gonna be able to get back from this. And that's one of the big differences between them. Yeah, and what makes Scorpius so scary too. Yeah, because Scorpius is the whole package.
0: Scorpius isn't just a mental threat. He doesn't just match John intellectually. He also outclasses him physically. Yeah. And yeah. the other thing I, I want to point out here is you mentioned that it's Scorpius's Scaron side. We don't know who the Scarins are yet. So no, all, we don't. So if you're a first-time viewer, and that's what I really, that's what I just love about Scorpius, is Scorpius comes <laughs> in, he's a peacekeeper of the highest order, but he doesn't, in a society that conforms in everything... In terms of aesthetics, in terms of behavior, Scorpius doesn't look like a peacekeeper. He doesn't act like a peacekeeper. He doesn't dress like a peacekeeper. But yet he prides himself so much on being a peacekeeper because his anger there when he uses that deep voice is he's like, you made me show this physical side of myself that obviously he tries to repress.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's this great little reveal too about because like this is the first time we've seen Scorpius' physicality like that. And so there's a moment in the fight when, you know, Kreis keeps slamming Scorpius into the walls and it looks like Kreis might actually win until he pulls this card out of his sleeve. And he's like no I'm not going to let you hurt me like this but it's the first time that we see Scorpius bring out that side of him Mm -hmm. it's
0: a nice reveal and I just I still love that line of like why do you you know Scorpius's frustration at like why do I have to defeat you both mentally and physically
1: (laughs) why won't you just die already yeah
0: (laughs) And we kind of see, like, in the next episode, it's, it's such a good carryover. Like, their arc oh, definitely yeah. occurs over the course of two episodes. And it's, yeah. and even though this feels like the end, the denouement just, like... Wait, how do you say that word? Denouement. Denouement.
1: That's, that's, the, that's the French pronunciation. Anyway,
0: the <laughs> denouement, it just... It's so good. It's so worth it. It's
1: so good. Yeah.
0: So, okay. Yeah. So that's kind of the end of their plot, is Scorpius winning physically and mentally so their argument over moya's offspring isn't really that unfounded because kind of the third mini plot in this episode is the fact that moya can't communicate with her offspring because the offspring is too peacekeeper for her to really have an easy connection with
1: yeah he's he's a combination leviathan gunship and he knows he's different and that causes him to not trust Moya either because he can sense her unease. I think there's some of that going on if I'm reading that right. Mm-hmm. So Pilot and Moya are really, really worried and they ask actually Aaron to stay behind and not go to the asteroid and help them out with the baby. Mm-hmm. It, it is really sweet because it kind of calls back to two things. It calls back to
0: Aaron's intimate relationship with Moya and then it also kind of calls back to that scene she had with Grace where she fully and completely gave up being a peacekeeper right where it isn't something she even wants anymore and so I think that pilot asking her to help the help the baby because she was a peacekeeper is just really satisfying because it kind of allows her to touch that side of herself without mm-hmm. it hurting
1: yeah and also it's you know, it's like she has. She left the peacekeepers. She got out of them. She knows. She knows what it's like on the other side, and that's an experience that I think they're hoping that she can, also impart that it's okay that you have this side of you, and it's okay to be outside of the peacekeepers too. Mm-hmm. Because when she goes to the baby, it's it's
0: really neat because everything is so automatic. Like he mm-hmm. can understand salvation and. You know, when she's she says, OK, well, we need to do this. And like this panel kind of starts lighting up like it's trying to communicate with her. And it just
1: feels very fluent. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the set design of the baby's command, too. It's it's all in Peacekeeper reds and blacks. It's got those triangular shapes, those those motifs that you see in Peacekeeper art and wall hangings and all of those motifs appear on the baby in the command, too. And Aaron even at one point says, like, I feel really at home amongst all these peacekeeper systems. Mm -hmm. But the real point of connection for them comes. She's gotten the systems up and running. So she's she's activated things. She's turned on the lights. So the baby is putting out energy. And because Scorpius has kept the command carrier in place and it hasn't moved on, they have to hide again. And she has to convince the baby to power down. So I'm going to play that scene because it's it's one of the first real moments of bonding that they have.
2: I try to communicate with you, they are called peacekeepers, and you must understand they are not to be believed. Look, it's true in a perverse way, you do come from them. But so do I. Look wish there was more time for this but there isn't any time you are going to have to decide if you will trust your mother us if you're going to trust me Mm.
1: yeah he's very young he's days old he doesn't know what's going on he's got these signals coming at him His mother is different from him. He's different from his mother. He knows there's something going on that's wrong with him. And he has to trust somebody. And it's just, it makes the fact that he ends up trusting Aaron is just, I love it. It's, they have this bond just from the very beginning. And it's, you can't obviously hear the baby talk, but he, he does blinking lights and noises and things like that. And he listens to her and he powers down. And you see how much it moves Erin since she's the person with a face that we can we can read off of read off of. And this is this really wonderful moment between the two of them. We talked a little
0: bit about how a lot of the traits that are stereotypically feminine are given to John, like in in TV shows, you know, like the emotional mm-hmm. the emotional traits, the, you know, kind of like good at science you know those kind of things that are typically like what a female character would have are given to John and then Aaron gets like a lot of these stereotypically masculine traits of like war you know she's the fighter she doesn't isn't in touch with her emotions she has the better emotional arc and yet here we have her really connecting with what is a child and what she's treating as a child um and it kind of I wouldn't say it really shows like a maternal side to her, but it shows her coming coming from more of a place of more of a place of empathy, more of a place of her her realizing that it is a child and that it's not fair, and her kind of being able able to interact with her own past, where she was a child who was sent to war, or she was a child who was trained for war. And her kind of being able to interact with that from a place of emotional
1: steadiness, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's like the auntie here. That's kind of how I read it. Yeah. And and I, I like that, what you said about, you know, her also having been a child of war and knowing kind of where he's coming from, knowing that he is destined for war. Because there's this little scene afterwards where the scans are coming again, right? And the baby has weapons and they've powered it up and to see if they can power it up. And Rigel and Shiana on the comms, Rigel's like, you want to stay over there and defend us? So I'm going to play that little scene so you can hear, hear how protective Aaron is of the baby.
2: What slimy means is uh, if we get attacked, the only weapon we've got is that kid. I am not dragging this ship into a conflict, not of its making. Who said we had a choice? Mm-hmm. And she's,
1: she is the wall between the baby and the war outside the door. And it's, she's just so emphatic about it, and it's it's so protective of her to feel that way about, about a baby ship, He's mm-hmm. really cute, by the way. I know. Um, <laughs> and the really sad part is when, when Rigel says, well, is there really a choice? Because they're in such a desperate situation, and that's kind of what's really heartbreaking about this whole scenario is that he has been born with weapons into a universe, a cruel universe, as Zan says, on the asteroid to bring that back in. And, you know, what does what is his life going to be like as the child of fugitives? hmm.
0: Well, and and I think what's nice here is that before we really only had Rigel, who was kind of the practical one, Do you know, like the one that was yeah. very me first practical but now, So now we have Rigel and Shiana as kind of the two faces, because obviously Chiana is much more sympathetic. And earlier when Rigel had kind of been like, uh, why don't you stay there so you can defend us? And Shiana's like, you know what? You might want to keep your foot one foot out of your mouth because you're going to need it to run, Rigel. And she's the one that's kind of able to bridge that divide between yeah. the rest of the crew's... Sometimes, um, sometimes unrealistic dreaminess or what's the word I'm looking for? Unrealistic. Idealism. Idealism. Yeah. She's the one that's able to sometimes bridge Rigel's position as the completely practical one to the crew's sometimes unrealistic idealism.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And also in a way that's empathetic, Mm -hmm. you know? Because here she is, she's translating Rigel's actually very cold heartedness, like, hey, this kid's a weapon, we're going to use him as a weapon, no regard for him at all. Whereas Chiana's approach, at least in the tone of her voice and how she phrases it is like, well, here's the option that we have. I mean, it's not ideal, but here we go. Mm-hmm. And that's, this quote might not be the best example of that, but she has a much softer touch. In mm-hmm. terms of translating the cold, hard reality that Rigel is so bluntly willing to state at any time with, with the honor and do the right thing mentality of, of the others. Who usually use that to guide their actions. Mm-hmm. The episode ends
0: with the rest of the crew back. And so we have them about to try and get out of the asteroid field. We have the, the baby ship now communicating with Aaron. We have... And we have Scorpius having firmly wrested power away from Krace. And so even though this was kind of a filler episode, it ends with everybody in a much different place than they were at the beginning of the episode.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a necessary transition, too, because you get to have a little bit of breathing space. But the, the Scorpius and Crace storyline, I think, is the one that is essential to have moved from from where they do it where they are at the beginning to where they are at the end because it really puts Scorpius in the driver's seat as the villain as the one who is the main antagonist that the crew has to go up against mm-hmm. and and then you also got get this other character stuff that's having breathing room and a reaction time and a little place to say okay all this horrible stuff has happened we're in this horrible situation here's how we're reacting to it on the psychological personal level We've got all this gray area that's wrapped up in the theme of the episode of who is the friend and who is the foe. And now we are ready to go into the final episode of the season that takes all of this, including the stuff that comes, the emotional stuff that comes out of this episode and caps it off. Mm-hmm.
0: It is very, it's very satisfying. So we mentioned it earlier, but in Wardrobe Watch, John is still wearing PK clothes and not just any PK mm-hmm. clothes. But like the same clothes he was wearing when he was imprisoned by Scorpius, which is kind of <laughs> okay there.
1: <laughs> well, part of his mental state, he hasn't been able to change. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Everybody else is pretty much in their standard outfit then.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What would you give this episode? I'd give it give it a solid four, four and a half. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of in the context of the episodes that surround it, which are so outstanding. I really like this episode a lot though. And I think... I don't know, the Scorpius and Kraese scenes are my favorite part. Like, they just blow me away. That's what I think this episode brings to the whole season. And yet, I also love the Zan reveal, and I also love the little bits of humor we get in some of the other storylines that are just, you know, just a little bit of a break from the high intensity that we've had.
0: Yeah, the Kraese-Scorpius stuff is, like, off the charts in terms of good, good. It is, like, a really good way of kind of of kind of kind capping Kraese's tendency as a character to be comically... You know like comically mustache twirling do you know what I mean <laughs>
1: yeah it's yeah. like
0: having the contrast of Scorpius like really makes the two characters feel a lot more three-dimensional
1: to me oh yeah definitely yeah
0: it was good yeah. all
1: right well next week we have family family ties family ties last episode of season one yeah so bring tissues people oh my god bring so many tissues yeah <laughs> Did
0: they know? Do you know if they knew they were already going to have a second season? I by don't. the time by the time they finished up season 1.
1: I don't know. If anyone out there knows that, please let us know. That's not in my uh Farscape trivia okay. repertoire. I would just be I would just be curious
0: just because of how Family Ties goes as a as an episode.
1: Yeah. So, anyway, follow us on Tumblr, follow us on Dreamwidth. We have an email address. All of them are Farscape Friday podcast. And we will see you next time. Yeah. Bye.